The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, it's a great privilege to be able to speak uh, this morning in Pastor Scott's absence. And um, ever since ever since last week when he made some comments about what I was wearing, I've been thinking about how I could get back, with, uh, get back at him. Um, but of course, he's not here today, so... Maybe you all can just make something up and tell him that I really got him good while he was gone. But I I want to encourage you to turn, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 51. And we're taking a break this morning from from Exodus and looking at a a bit of um, poetry, Psalm chapter 51. And we're going to be talking this morning about sin, identity, and conscience, talking about our consciences and how our consciences are always just downstream from our identity, are always just downstream from our understanding of who we are and our understanding of who God is. Our consciences, I think, are interesting things, aren't they? Some of you in the room have a very sensitive conscience. Your conscience is uh, is such that You can think about something and dwell about something that you've done and you wonder if that thing that you've said, if the person still remembers it or if they were offended or if somehow that what you have said or done has just brought disrepute onto Christ. And while that's good, maybe your conscience is uh, a little over the top on that end of the spectrum. You, uh, You lose sleep even thinking about things that happened long ago. You think about that thing that happened a couple of years ago or in high school and you wonder if the Lord still holds that against you. When you pray, it's very difficult for you because when you kneel before the Lord and you are trying to think about him, really the only thing that you can think about is how the things that you have done against him probably make him mad. Your conscience is, is very sensitive. Perhaps what Tim Keller has said sums up what you believe, and that is that uh, you think that you need to work to re-enter a right relationship with God because you have broken that. Perhaps what Tim Keller says, he says this, while Christians know intellectually that their justification, big church word, it just means acceptance by God, While we know in our minds that our acceptance by God is the basis of our sanctification, is the basis of our doing good things, our moral behavior, in in our actual day-to-day existence, most Christians rely on their good behavior to make them right with God. Drawing our assurance of acceptance with God from our sincerity our past experience of conversion, our, our recent religious performance, how well we've done since the last time we, we've sinned, maybe like the, the little chalkboard in a warehouse that says this Christian has had 44 days since his last sin. Maybe the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. In other words, revivals and renewals are necessary because the default mode of our hearts is works righteousness. We do not ordinarily live as if the gospel is true. These are convicting words. Uh, Christians often believe in their heads that Jesus accepts me, therefore I will live a good life. But in their hearts, they are functioning as if, uh, if I live a good life, Jesus will accept me. 
And of course, we talk often here about the relationship between works and salvation and how uh, that should be, that, that out of a heart that has been changed by real grace, then true obedience might happen. But if we're honest with ourselves, we are what one person has called spring-loaded legalist. It's even in our culture. Maybe you remember 1964, the song from 1964 by J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers, uh, the, the teen tragedy. It kind of created a genre there. It's uh, called Last Kiss. And maybe you remember the words. He says, uh, well, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've, what? So I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. Or perhaps it's like Kenny Chesney, if you're a fan of a different uh, genre, where he says uh, he's singing about where I come from. It's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, it's back porch sitting or front porch sitting or whatever he says. And then he says, trying to make a living and working hard to get to heaven where I come from. Or maybe it it reminds you of the 2004 uh, uh, Clint Eastwood movie, A Million Dollar Baby. Disclaimer, I've never seen it all the way through, but I watched the trailer. For some reason, this trailer stuck out to me because there you've got Clint Eastwood who plays Frankie, and he's um, he's kind of this gruff old man who Clint Eastwood seems to do that pretty well, right? He's this gruff boxing trainer who, who has some regrets in his life and some broken relationships in his life, but he, he trains uh, this, this girl to be a boxer and, and she, um, she's injured uh, fatally because of things that happen in the boxing ring. And, um, and there's this scene with he and his priest at church at... Um, And the priest says this, Frankie, I've seen you at mass almost every day for the past 23 years. The only kind of person who comes to church that much is the kind who can't forgive himself for something. It's very interesting, this idea that that many of us believe that we can somehow, by our efforts, we feel so indebted, our consciences are beaten so black and blue that we feel we must perform to re-enter God's good graces. And is this the gospel? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I know it not to be the case. Others of you, though, are on the other side of the spectrum. You, you have consciences that can allow you to watch the movies and to drink the drinks and to listen to the music and to skip out on the responsibilities that make the first group cringe. Your consciences are such that you are able to maybe just any old thing can just roll off your back with ease. It makes the people in the first group feel almost envious of you, but you know deep down in your heart that something's not right about that, easy, about that either. That perhaps things that should bother you don't. Perhaps things that should stir your conscience and move you toward repentance, they don't because there is a callousness that has overtaken your heart. You say things like, well, yeah, I I did this thing. Does that make me a bad person? And it's easy to joke about it. It's easier to joke about it than it is to examine ourselves and ask, am I where I need to be? Am I leading my family in the way that I need to lead my family? Have I been unjust to people in, in a way that I 
should repent for. It's easier to joke about it than it is to face the reality that we are perhaps not as good as we would like to think. These issues of, of conscience, they all deal with our identity. Because here's the situation. If you believe that God is a, you know, just mean, crotchety, old, get-off-my-lawn HOA president in the sky who's trying to, to, to squeeze out all the goodness in your life, then you're probably going to be in that first group where your conscience is just so easily pricked. And every little thing, you, you feel like you have to do all the Hail Marys or you feel like you have to do whatever it is to re-enter your graces. And if you are honest with yourself, what that really means inside of your heart is that you think that there is more than the perfect blood of Jesus that needs to be applied to your life to make you right. Jesus' sacrifice is not enough, is it? And then those of you who are in the second group, perhaps you think that God is just kind of this, you know, happy grandfather who you, you get to sit up on his lap and he just kind of forgives everything because you're the grandkids and you're at the house for the weekend and he really doesn't take sin that seriously. And really what that says about our identity and our understanding of God's identity is we don't really believe that he is as holy and as set apart and as just as he says he is. Our identities, how we understand ourselves and how we understand the identity of God to be affects our conscience. We want to look today at a picture, I think, of the healthy conscience. Because we can agree, I think, that neither one of these examples are good. But David, uh, David, who wrote, who wrote Psalm 51, he has a little bit of experience, I don't know if you remember, with sin. David uh, did some things in his life uh, and had such a heart that uh, caused God to call him a man after my own heart. But at the same time, this same man who had all of the pedigree and all of the history and all of the great track record fell. He sinned. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And many people think that Psalm 51 came out of that experience. We, we don't, it doesn't say that here, but we can know for sure that Psalm 51 presents for us a plan or a model for how we might understand ourselves, understand our own identities as sinners, and understand God's identity as a just judge, but a ready forgiver. So let's delve into this for a moment and look and see what Psalm 51 has to reveal about us. David prays this. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not 
away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Lord, as we approach your word, we recognize this reality that we are always changed when we are confronted by your word. We either respond in sensitivity and we respond in a willingness to change and a willingness to repent. The Christian life is about change. It's about repentance. It's about renewal every day. Lord, I pray we would not fear that. I pray that we would not hesitate to repent in the ways that you will this morning call us to change. I pray, Lord, that we would not harden our hearts because that is the other response. The other response is to just, just like a piece of clay, the only thing that, that's needed to make it hard is to leave it alone. I pray that you would not this morning leave us alone. I pray that you would continue to mold us, to shape us in the likeness of your son, Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake, amen. So we understand this morning that just like David, our conscience is downstream from our identity. He knows some things about himself. I don't know how much of this you picked up on. We're going to explore it. But he knows a few things about himself. And number one is how desperate of a sinner he is. He knows some things about God. And the things about God that he knows, the identity of God that he understands is what makes the first identity bearable. He says this, first of all, he knows that he is a hopeless sinner. Look in verse number three. He says this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If this passage, if this verse were just left alone, it would paint a picture of someone who simply just wallows every day in guilt. But we've established that that's not healthy because of our identity in Christ. But here's what he says. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In other words, he is not denying the presence of his sin. He is not saying that I have to believe in order to feel like a good person. I have to believe things. I have to deceive myself. I have to believe things about myself that are not true. The gospel is this, is that God says and the scriptures say that we are not better than we think we are. We are worse than we think we are, but God loves us anyway. That is the gospel. The gospel is not that because you're a Christian, you're a little better than other people, although we understand that we do live in victory, we do grow, and we do grow in holiness over the course of our life, but it is not on that basis that God accepts us. The gospel is that we are worse than we think we are, but God has still set his affection on us. 
The only place for praise is toward God in that kind of situation. Because if we are honest about our sin, as David is, then we cannot glorify ourselves. We cannot claim any of the praise as coming to us. He reiterates this in verse 5. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother deceive me. It's as if he says, I'm not the guy who ran off the boat and jumped in the water and now I'm drowning. He says, I'm the guy who was born face down in the water. And the only reason that I am now alive is because God's affection set on me and because of his grace applied to my life. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. From day one, I had a problem. I did not grow into this. He's honest about his sin. And here's the reason. Folks, this is not just a fun thing to talk about, okay? This is not the kind of thing that'll draw a huge crowd. I can introduce you to some churches that, you know, are having great success in that department. But the reality is this. If the reason that we so often talk about our reality, our identity, not, this is not the complete word on our identity, but it is a true word. As sinners... Is because of, it was at least twofold. First of all, it keeps us from anti gospel expectations in our life. And, and let me explain what I mean. If you go through life expecting that you will be perfect, I think that that's going to drive you to doubt the Savior. And I'll give you an example, a very heartbreaking example. I knew a man who was in ministry and from the outside had a very successful student ministry. And he was saved in a way that uh, provided a great, what we would consider often a great testimony. He was saved out of a life of, of addiction and trouble with the law. And he became a believer. He professed Christ and he went into ministry. He got a number of degrees and he was working on his dissertation for a PhD at a seminary. And he came to this place in his life where he said, I still sin. He says, I have these desires and I don't know where they're coming from. I don't understand. I must not be saved. What he didn't have was a good theology of sin. That even though there are things that are true of us in Christ now and that we should glory in, we live in this period of time called the already but not yet. We are already glorified, but are we with Christ yet? No. We are already justified, but do we still sin? Yes. Having a good theology of sin keeps us from anti-gospel expectations about our life. We can say with Paul, I am the chief of all sinners and mean it. So while the culture says do not believe bad things about yourself, we say that it is actually believing in the reality of our sin that keeps us clinging to the gospel every day. David says my sin is ever before me, therefore God must be ever before me. I must return to him daily because my sin returns to me daily. 
Secondly, it keeps us from the anti-gospel belief that God's love is directed toward us based on our goodness. And we have explored this at least in brief a few moments ago. These realities are why David appeals to God as he does. If you notice, um, he, he does not ask God to set him back on the right path. He does not say, God, show me the five steps to, you know, of a, a victorious Christian life. Or God, give me the, the, the halftime pep talk that I need to, 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 to get through the day. He says, he, he asks God, look what he says in, um, in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This word for create, and I don't want to make too much out of this, but this create, the, the word bara is the same word that he uses in Genesis when he creates everything. He says, create in me a clean heart. He says, just kind of scrubbing the old one is not going to work. Charles Spurgeon says this, he is too experienced in the hopelessness of the old nature. He would have the old man buried as a dead thing and the new creation brought to fill its place. And this leads him to victory. This leads him toward action. We'll look at this in a moment. Secondly, we, we've said um, that he knows he's a, he's a hopeless sinner, but he, he also knows a few things about God. He knows that God is a just Judge in verses four and eight. We'll look at verse four. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He does not come to God with excuses. He says, Because I am a sinner and because you are holy, whatever you do to me is perfectly just, is perfectly right. In verse 8, he says this, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He seems to have this notion in his mind that God is the just judge and that God is right. David admits to the condition that his sin leaves him in. God is totally justified if he were just to leave him to wallow in the consequences of his sin. But we understand that God does not do that, does he, for those who respond to him in faith. I would ask you to search your heart. If it is true in your heart, if you're in that group number two, that it just seems like when you sin, that it doesn't seem to be all that serious to you. I'm not talking about you, you, you mess up and you, you come to God in repentance and he grants you freedom. I'm talking about you don't even feel the conviction in the first place. If you are in that camp, I want you to see that it is not just because you've misunderstood the seriousness of sin. It's because also that you've misunderstood the identity of God. That our sin is not so much about how bad it is as it is about who it was committed against. It's possible for, for me to, to say things to my wife and to be snarky and to, and to not help her and to serve her in the way that I should. And in a sense, it's true that I have sinned against her. But every sin ultimately is committed against God because he is the one to whom we will answer at the end. And he is the only one who is perfect. We sin against one another. We should reconcile. But at the end of the day, we're just sinners sinning against other sinners. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
if it is true of you that, that you recognize that sin just doesn't seem to really phase you, I mean, you just don't feel that conviction, I would encourage you, first of all, to throw yourself on God and to ask him to open the eyes of your heart that you may see him for who he is, that you may be saved. I beg of you to do that. I beg of you to do that. This is what he says. I think this is why David uses all of these illustrations. I don't know if you noticed, this is one of the beautiful things about poetry in the scriptures. Is it notice what he says? He doesn't say, hey, God, forgive me. Psalm over. He says, have mercy on me, oh God, according to your Uh, according to your steadfast love. He goes on, he says, blot out my transgressions. He says, wash me. And if washing is is not good enough, cleanse me. And if cleansing is not good enough, then would you purge me and I will be clean. And if that's not good enough, Lord, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquities again and create in me a clean heart. He seems to know how deeply the root of his transgression runs. That whenever he does something bad, it's not just because he did a bad action, it's because he wanted to. It's an issue of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. Thirdly, I would direct you to, to see that, uh, that the issue of identity here, that, that David not only knows how bad of a sinner he is, and not only knows how just of a judge God is, but he also knows how God is a ready and perfect forgiver. God is a perfect and ready forgiver. Folks, this is the reality, the identity of God that makes the first two bearable. And if we understand, if you were to walk out, you know, after point number one, when I was doing like a WWE smackdown on how bad of a sinner we are, you'd probably have to like stop at QT and get a pint of Ben and Jerry's and curl up in the fetal position this afternoon just to get through the day because it's such a black picture of our reality. But the the truth of the matter is that even though we are that bad, when we have a gospel, when we have a gospel that is true, uh, that, that says true things about us, we can affirm that we are way down here because we believe that God is way up there and he still loves us. We are not boxed into this corner of despair or of defeat, but we can understand that because of real grace, we can experience victory and we can begin to live lives of obedience and of holiness to him. One of the beauties of this psalm is that so little of it is about us and so much of it is about God. Notice what he says in verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? According to how good I've been since the last time I sinned? According to the family that I come from? According to how many books I've read on this issue or or? How many times I've had a great devotional? No, he says, says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse six, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This truth that God is a just judge would cause us only fear if it were not accompanied by the reality that while God is just and is a just judge, he also stands ready to forgive as a good, good father. 
It's who he is. And we are loved by him. It's who we are. David understands the identity and nature of God. He also knows that God desires truth. God stands ready for his creatures, you and I, to be restored back to the relationship that we were originally created to enjoy with him. That is God's desire. His desire is not to live, is not to leave us in this defeated reality of just sin and we can't do anything. He gives us more grace. And he stands ready today for you. Verses 16 and 17 enunciate this as well. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We, we recognize these realities. Perhaps it, it reminds us of Matthew chapter 9. When, um, and I'll turn there. You might just uh, want to listen as I read this uh, story. Matthew 9 um, Verse 13 or so, I'll start in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They were sharing a very intimate setting, a meal around a table. They were reclining. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when he heard it, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. We, we learn this as well from Isaiah chapter, uh, Isaiah 11, uh, 111. What to me is this multitude of your sacrifices, God says to Israel? You keep thinking that you can earn favor with me by bringing to me these, these blood, the blood of, of bulls and goats. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come appear to me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? The issue is not so much that they're coming and bringing him sacrifices, it's that they're doing it with a wrong heart, thinking that they have the ability to accomplish spiritual good. Bring no more vain offerings. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you, he says in verse 15. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. God does not desire these, and this is a word for me, folks. God does not desire our legalistic rituals. And there is a reason for this. He is not interested in your trying to do the work that only Jesus' perfect blood can do. He's not interested in your spiritual pedigree, your family, or anything else. He's interested in the blood of Jesus and whether or not you have faith in that. Verse seven enunciates this as well. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This kind of scandalous faith is only appropriate if God is a good forgiver. This, this prayer that he prays, this purge me and I will be clean, wash me and I will be whiter than snow, 
that is scandalous because of our sin, but it is altogether right because of the nature of God. We are sinners, so we should not be able to enter his presence and to ask him to do this for us, but because of his nature as a loving father who wants today to extend grace for our sin, he says, this is right, and this is good, and this is how we should respond to God. Wash me, and I will be clean. Purge me, and I will be clean. It echoes something that we know from from Matthew chapter 8. You remember when the leper came to Jesus. And the leper responded in faith. He said, Lord, if you will, I will be healed. This scandalous faith. If you will, you can make me clean. The the ruler in Matthew chapter nine, he had a daughter who was dead. And the ruler came to Jesus and said, but come, lay your hand on her and she will live. This faith is only appropriate. And by the way, in all of these examples and more, Jesus did what they asked. Because when we respond to God in this faith, that is that faith that he honors, the faith in the identity of who he is, that yes, we are sinners, yes, he is a just judge, but he is a ready and perfect forgiver. And he wants to restore to you the joy of your salvation. This is, an, this is as apt a word for us believers as it is for those who are here today and you're saying, I'm not trusting in Christ. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not you know, one of the people here who are saying that, that I've given my life to Christ. This is an apt word because it shows us about the nature of God. And the reason that it is just as applicable to you as it is to me is because I need the gospel today as much as I have ever needed it even the first day that I came to believe. I need the gospel every day. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but the beauty of throwing yourself on this gracious father is that when you really do receive genuine grace, it does move you to action. It does move you to obedience. I'll be honest with you, I tend toward the legalistic side of things because I just, I don't know, it's always been in my nature to just want to play it safe, to just be a, you know, to err on the side of safety and whatever, and that kept me out of a lot of trouble, you know, when I was in high school, but it also allowed me to believe a lot of false things about the gospel that I could make myself right before God, almost. But notice what happens when we receive genuine grace He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He says, in essence, the only way that I am going to do what you call us to do and teach transgressors about you and we could say today about your son is if I have been changed by this grace. It's the only way. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud. The only way to offer God genuine praise, the only way for our tongues to sing aloud the glories of his majesty is if we have been changed by this grace. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Reminds me of 
in the same little passage. I don't have it here, so I, don't quote me on this, but I think it's in Matthew 8 or 9 or 10, somewhere right in there. The reason I know that is because that's what we're going through with the students now. And Jesus raises this woman from her sickness or, or death. I can't remember the, the specifics, but it says, and she rose and began to serve him. And I don't wanna like spiritualize that too much, but I just think that's a natural response that when Jesus raises us in such a way that we could not raise ourselves, it's just natural to begin to serve him. So here's the takeaway from all this. I wanna give you some, some things to do. You, you might be wondering, what is it that I do with this? For, for some of you, your identity is wrapped up. Your conscience is in such a state because your identity is wrapped up in the belief that there is more atonement, there is more payment, there is more sacrifice for you to make than the blood of Jesus. Uh, you are like the Avis Christian. You guys know the Avis car rental company, the company that would not, when the bus broke down in Tennessee, would not allow me to rent more than one vehicle. And I think I wrote a bad Google review after that. But the Avis motto is, we try harder. Are you the Avis Christian? You know, you just, you just, you just try harder. You know, God, I failed you today, but I'm just going to try harder. The reality is that trying harder never satisfies because in the economy of God, he demands perfection. Trying harder for Jesus leaves you exhausted, and you know it. It leaves you exhausted all the time because God doesn't demand effort. He demands perfection. And your effort will never attain to that perfection. And even if it did one day, you still have a track record of sin that follows you everywhere you go. And you know this all too well because you're tired and your vain efforts every day just keep leading you in, in these little drives through subdivisions. It's just cul-de-sac after cul-de-sac after cul-de-sac and you just keep going in circles and you feel like you're lost in suburbia and you can't get out because you just keep trying harder when the reality is you need to humble yourself and get off of yourself and believe that the reality is that you cannot save yourself but Jesus has done the work for you necessary to bring you to God. And he stands ready today as the just and perfect forgiver to extend that to you if you will respond to him in faith. And you can rest and you can have your peace because he says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For others of you, it's, it's been somewhat different. Your conscience isn't beaten black and blue because of your sin. As a matter of fact, your conscience is very rarely ever phased. You don't seem to have much, uh, uh, much sensory stuff going on there because you've convinced yourself that your identity is one based on your own perfection. Whenever maybe you are tempted, or not tempted, but whenever uh, you are confronted by your own sin, your mind whispers things like, that wasn't me. I would never. Well, it has something that they, they caused me to. And these whispers come in and really what it is is blame shifting. The reason that you have never come to Christ is because you have never admitted that you are bad off enough to need him. You have never been healed by the physician because you have never admitted that you are sick. As a matter of fact, you haven't even set up an appointment because so far the makeup has been able to cover up the leprosy. Until this point, that's been good enough for you. 
that you have this burdensome feeling that one day the sores are gonna break through and the cancer that you have inside of you is gonna be revealed for what it is and you will be left with no God and no reputation. The good news is the gospel fixes both. And if we believe what the scriptures say about the identity of our God, he stands ready for you legalist person that has the tendencies like me. He stands ready to knock you off your high horse to get you, you know, uh, to stop worshiping yourself, thinking that you can make yourself right. And, and the other person who kind of has the conscience that doesn't really ever, uh, you know, bother all that much, even over really bad stuff that, that it should, he offers to you genuine holiness. The gospel causes us to not have to deny sin in our life because Jesus is the perfect substitute. We don't have to worry about falling into the trap of 1 John 1 where it says, if you say that you have no sin, you lie and do not practice the truth. The gospel also keeps us though from living these, these licentious and this, this libertine, this, this just kind of, uh, you know, I like to sin, God likes to forgive, you know, Katie bar the door kind of life because it leads us to genuine holiness on the other side of grace. It, it leads us to genuine obedience, not this kind of obedience that we think can, can drum up some kind of salvation. My prayer is that you would respond today. I'm gonna pray in a moment, and I would ask that during this time of prayer, you just reflect on what we have said, on what I have said, and what the word of God has said moreover as we continue, Lord, you are good to us and you give us your word. I pray that um, you will have uh, used this um, imperfect messenger to, to deliver a perfect message. Lord, I pray that, that because of your grace, there would be uh, folks here today who would be stirred to repentance, that there would be those who today realize that they're in the first category and, and, and really have never trusted Christ or they're in the second category and really have never trusted Christ or that they're, they're kinda, they kind of have tendencies of, of either category, but uh, they just need to, they, they need to repent and to trust you anew because we need the gospel every day. I pray that we would do that. In the name of Christ, amen. We're gonna reflect for a moment. We, we try to give you a, a time as Ethan plays to sit and to think about the word of God today and about the things that we have sung and the things that God has said through his word. We want to give you this opportunity to allow what your ears have heard to sink into your heart and to contemplate what, you, what response might be appropriate for you today. In a moment, Ethan will ask us to stand and, and sing. And during that time, I'll make myself available if, if there's any way that I might could speak to you to give you uh, an idea of a next step. If you need to come today and make public uh, something that the Lord has done in your heart, we believe in that here because we believe that the, the scriptures say that there is a, a place for public confession. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, we, we want to give you an opportunity to do that, to, to come to this altar, this, this, this stage really. And uh, if it makes you, um, if it pleases you to do that, we would ask you to, uh, to do whatever the Lord has called you to do in response to his word.
This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.